Um, that's awesome. That was so great to hear, Ken. And uh, it's just, when we talk about being missional around here, that's such a great example. Like finding a need, serving, and then inviting other people to come along with you. That's just an incredible way of uh, honoring God with your time and resources. And so thanks for sharing. That was really cool. Um, hey, I have the challenge of trying to preach through the end of Hebrews 4 through Hebrews 7 today. So it's going to get weird. I'm just going to say that right now. I'm going to jump around a lot. I'm going to try to get to a point that makes sense for all of us. But first, I was doing some research about something I was curious about. I was curious about people who uh, defend themselves in court. And uh, of course, that stumbled me onto <laughs> a website that talks about Florida Man. Does anybody know Florida Man? Okay. The challenge is... You type Florida man into Google with your birthday and you see what crazy thing some dude did in Florida on your birthday, okay? And I found some that I just felt like I had to share. The first one, Florida man threw live gator in Wendy's drive-thru window. <laughs> Love it. I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. It's so weird. Florida man tries to evade arrest by cartwheeling away from cops. I wish I had that on video. Florida man calls 911, says he needs a ride to Hooters. <laughs> Moving along. Florida man attempting to time travel crashes into strip mall. And my favorite, Florida man arrested for practicing karate on Swansat Park. I promise this has to do with what we're talking about today. I stumbled upon this because I was looking for a court case that I would heard about. A Florida man, let me get rid of these. Um, a Florida man who um, was accused of murder, and he chose to represent himself at the trial. And he did not do a good job. He didn't know the law. There was all sorts of procedural mistakes. And at one point, he openly, in a hostile way, is shouting at the jury. The people who decide whether he's innocent or guilty, he's shouting at them angrily. Not a great tactic when you're trying to prove that you are not violent and you have self-control. We can all guess what the verdict was. <laughs> guilty, yes, guilty. There's a, a phrase, a wise old proverb that says, a man who represents himself in court has a fool for a lawyer and a fool for a client. And there's something to this that, that, that the F Florida man does have to do with Hebrews today because sometimes it's better to have someone else represent you. Sometimes you need someone else to represent you. Um, with, in the case of representing yourself in court, you're too close to it, so you're too emotionally attached to think about it, right? You don't know the law, so you have no chance against an experienced lawyer. It's just bad. You need someone else to represent you. And the author of Hebrews talks, spends multiple chapters similarly talking about why we need a representative, a representative, a mediator. And in the process, the writer of Hebrews talks a lot about the idea of priests. And we're not going to read every verse from the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 7. We're going to bounce around a bit. But uh, the, the, the first part of this is going to seem very academic because there is a lot going on in Hebrews. And you can't just read it at face value and know exactly what's going on. So bear with me with some of that stuff. But uh, we're going to get to a point where like, oh, this actually does hit home for us. This, this actually really matters for us, even though it seems very academic. Okay. So let's do this. Let's dive in at uh, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 5 and read these verses, and then we'll talk about what they mean. The author starts with this. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. 
and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And, says, and he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, a couple of things. First, we're going to get into what this is all about. And second, we're going to talk about our homie, Melchizedek. Uh, any experts on Melchizedek? Anybody ever do a deep dive on him? Okay, I'm the only one. All right. Uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, so the, the author here is, is getting into this concept of priesthood. And this would have been very familiar to the hearers of this original. The original recipients of this letter would be very familiar with priesthood. And he's making the case that Jesus is the perfect high priest. You know, in week one, we discussed the, the author making a case that Jesus is the greatest messenger. Um, greater than angels, greater than prophets. And he shows us fully what God is like. And then last week, Adrian talked about, uh, about Jesus being greater than Moses. A leader better than Moses to lead the people into rest, into God's presence. And today, the author is making the case that Jesus is the perfect high priest. He is the greatest priest greater than any that had ever come before. So what was a high priest? Well, uh, it was, it was this, this person who did a very important job, but we got to start way back because the author starts way back. God has a chosen people to represent him. In Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and he says, your family, you're going to be the ones that will represent me to the world. I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing to the whole world. One of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is, you know, Abraham's offspring, eventually would become known as Israel, and they're made up of 12 tribes. One of the tribes is the Levites, the tribe of Levi, and all of the priests of Israel come from the tribe of Eli. The prototype for a priest is a famous Levite, Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, Moses we talked about last week. So from the tribe of Levi, a high priest would be selected, and they had very important responsibilities. They had daily responsibilities, certain uh, uh, sacrifices, offerings, ceremonies they would do. And one of the most important duties came uh, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where the, the high priest would make atonement, sacrifices, so that God would forgive the sins of all the people. And when we say sacrifices, we're talking about animal sacrifices. Right? It's pretty rough. And this is... Uh, the only time throughout the year, Yom Kippur, uh, was the only time throughout the year that anyone was ever allowed into the most inner part of the sanctuary of the temple, which was known as the Holy of Holies. Okay, bear with me, I'm getting to a point. And this part of the temple was thought to be this, this special intersection where heaven and earth joined together. God's presence was so real in the space that sinful humans could not withstand it. They would drop dead in his presence. It was so serious that a legend grew that they used to have to tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest just in case he dropped dead by being overwhelmed with the presence of God that they would have to drag him out of the temple. Now, we don't know if that legend is true or false, but it does, under, it does underline the fact that this was a really serious thing. 
This was a reality for, for, for Jewish people at the time when Jesus came. There, there needed to be a priest, a mediator between God and humans, someone as a go-between to make peace with God. And we can get into the weeds and ask ourselves, well, did God need these animal sacrifices? What's the point of all that? And Pastor Ty is going to preach next week, and he's going to um, dig into that stuff a little bit more. But I just want to really quickly say, no, uh, God did not need any of that. But it is how he chose to deal with his people. And one of the reasons is he wants us to take sin seriously. When we rebel against God, the outcome is ultimately death. Something has to be done about it. And so the process of all of this animal sacrificing would be very unpleasant. He's saying, I'll accept a bull or a ram or a goat. Uh, I'll accept the death of that animal in place of your death because sin results in death. And to go and do that and to see all the sights and all the smells and the blood, like it was just awful. You can't go through all of that and then say, yeah, sin is no big deal. I can just do whatever I want. No, you would take it seriously. One other reason is that there seems to be, at this time especially, just universal religious practices. There were different gods that people worshipped, but their practices all looked very similar. And for the most, most cultures in the time and region of where the biblical events are playing out, things like priesthood and animal sacrifice were just practiced in every culture. And God often accommodates humanity to make peace. Uh, so many biblical scholars, when asked, what is up with all this animal sacrifice? They would say, you know, God is just redirecting our practices and taking them from pagan gods and saying, no, 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 no. Now you sacrifice to me. Now you, you put all that attention toward me and you make peace with me, the one true God. Learn to walk with me now. And this is a really important point that helps us understand the biblical world because much of it seems so foreign to us. Like for me, I didn't grow up in church at all. And my first religious experiences and my first experiences with religious leaders were actually really negative. So the idea of needing a priest, needing somebody else, just was totally, like, it wasn't just foreign to me. I objected it. I, I, I rejected it. I don't want that. I don't need a priest, right? But in this world, there just were. Priests existed. In every culture, in every religion, the priests stood between the people and their gods, right? David De Silva, who writes about the book of Hebrews, he said this, priests played an important role in both Jewish and Greco-Roman religion, standing between human beings and God or the gods to build or repair bridges between the two to assure the, the favor of the divine toward the people and secure for the people the assistance that only God or the gods could provide. There's an almost universal instinct among human cultures that there are great powers above us and that these powers, these holy others, have to be approached in just the right way in order to harness their power for our benefit and not our destruction. Similarly universal, therefore, is the figure of the mediator who has the proper knowledge of how to accomplish this. That's a nerdy way to say people of all times and places have this idea that we need a mediator who knows just how to approach God so that we'll receive his blessings and we'll avoid his curses. This is not uh, crazy. It's actually something we do in human relationships. Like if you have an acquaintance, a friend of a friend who has warrior season tickets and you're like, hey, man, I kind of want to go to a game. You don't go directly to that person. You, you go to the friend. And you say, hey, I know your boy's got seats. Can you put in a word for me? Maybe he'll hook me up with tickets, right? 
right? That's, that's how life is in so many ways. You go to the person who knows the person. You go to the person who has an expertise of the situation so that it turns out well for you instead of winging it and defending yourself in court, right? You leave it to somebody who knows what they're doing to help you in a situation. We, we, we mediate for one another all the time. And in the same way, priests were, were very dedicated to this role of mediation. Their whole life was about knowing and observing the Old Testament religious laws and practices with something as serious as forgiveness of sins for all the people, you don't leave it up to just any random dude walking down the street. No. If you want to make peace with God, you go to the person who spends their whole life thinking about, praying to, and practicing to walk with God. Makes sense, right? Okay, we're going to get that back to that old idea of priesthood in a second, but we've got to talk about our homeboy Melchizedek. And I'll try to be brief, but it's, it's, it's kind of really important that we figure this out, even though it's a confusing piece of scripture. So Melchizedek's story in the Bible actually only lasts three verses in the book of Genesis. So we've, we go all the way back to Abraham, right? And, uh, and this is in Genesis 14. Abraham's nephew Lot has been basically kidnapped and held hostage by a, a, a hostile kingdom. And so Abraham goes to battle, kicks some butt, rescues his nephew, and then after this victory, here's what Genesis 14 has to say. Kind of out of nowhere, this comes into the passage. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of, the, of God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham, or then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, that's, that's it. Hebrews spends three chapters essentially talking about why Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. And these are the only three verses about Melchizedek in the entire Bible. So what is going on here? He says it in verse 6, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is actually a quote from Psalm 110. Now, it's not just three verses. The, the, the psalmist looks back and, and sees something bigger in Melchizedek than just three verses as well. This is a psalm of David, who is the most important king in the history of Israel. And there was no king over Israel when the law was given. Okay, So when it was given to Moses and then Aaron becomes the first high priest, there is no king. And David is not a Levite. He cannot be a priest according to, to the Levitical law. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he can't have any priestly duties. But David knows there's another important priest outside of the whole religious system who is very important, the one who blessed Abraham, Melchizedek. He comes before the law is given, and, and, and he's exactly what the author of, of Hebrews is doing. David does for himself. I can be a priest on behalf of Israel because just like that priest king Melchizedek, I can help the people know who God is. And I can represent God to the people. And Jesus is a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus technically can't be high priest, right? Well, not so fast. He's a priest like Melchizedek, who's better than any of the priests that came through the law and the Aaron-shaped priesthood that we find in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews sees something in these texts, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, Something that you and I might not see at face value. And in their commentary on Hebrews, uh, Amy Peeler and Patrick Gray, they actually note this. They say this. Employing the rabbinic, that means rabbi, uh, 
rabbi's teaching, the rabbinic technique that argues from the silence of the text. In verse 3, the author notes the sudden appearance of Melchizedek and observes that Genesis offers no statement about his background and his abrupt departure, makes no mention of his death. The, the remarkable conclusion he draws is that he has no beginning or end. It's perhaps not self-evident to modern readers. It is in this sense that he resembles the Son of God who is with God before creation and will remain at God's right hand forever. This idea that Melchizedek has no beginning and no end was not a unique idea to the writer of Hebrews. It was pretty common according to the rabbis of that day. So where did he come from? What does he do and why does he do what he does? Right? The author of Hebrews doesn't actually give us... A, all of the answers to the mystery of Melchizedek, but he does help us to understand that he's much more important than these three verses in Genesis would have us understand. It's a mystery, but there are many mysteries in the book of Genesis that seem to foreshadow Jesus in really powerful ways, and this is one of them. One last clue that Melchizedek is actually really important, even though we only see him in those three verses. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything he owns. When we say tithes and offerings around here, it means that, a tenth. That's where that word comes from, tithe, tenth. Remember, Abraham is really, really, really important. Without him, we don't have Judaism. Without him, we don't have Christianity, right? It starts with Abraham. He's this really important guy. But what does he do? He submits to Melchizedek. Melchizedek must be a big deal. He must be really important. To give a tenth of your belongings to someone is actually a religious practice. Right? The Old Testament talks about this in its law books. People were expected to be generous, and the baseline for generosity was 10% that was meant to go to the temple and to the priesthood because the priests were dedicated to doing the religious work of the people to serve the people in that way so they couldn't do other jobs where they would grow food or earn money or anything like that. And the church has kept this tradition alive, and that's why, like I said, we use that word tithes and offerings. It's, it's, it's taught that 10% of our income is to go to the church uh, so that those in ministry can serve the people and reach their community with the gospel. And that may sound crazy to you because when I first heard of people giving 10% of their, their, their stuff, 10% of their income to the church, I was like, that's weird, right? That seems crazy. I, I really did, but... But it's something that, that our family has practiced for a long time. And you know, it's actually been a blessing to us. Because when we give, we know we're investing in something that, that's eternal, right? And Jesus talks about this when he talks about how we should look at our money. He says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, this is not necessarily a sales pitch for, for tithing, uh, but this is the first time we see tithing happen in the Bible, and so I was curious and did a little more research on it, and uh, we see it throughout this thread, throughout all the Bible, that generosity is important. And what we do with our money shows where our heart is. So if you're new to church or you're new to giving, I want to encourage you just to give it a try. It's actually a pretty important concept of the Bible. And like I said, it's been a blessing for us to invest in the work of the church because it's about investing in something that lasts beyond this life. And it's about investing in people. So what's really going on in Genesis 14 is Melchizedek is giving God's blessing to Abraham. And he continues on his journey, Abraham does, to be faithful to God and be a blessing to the whole world. And the fact that Abraham tithes to Melchizedek shows you that this guy is really important. 
And the author of Hebrews wants to help unlock the key of this mystery of who is Melchizedek. All right, that's a lot about a Melchizedek, okay? But, but this idea is central to the argument of the writer of Hebrews. Jesus isn't a Levite, so how can he be a priest, let alone a perfect high priest? Well, he's better than any Levite priest. He's like the priestly king Melchizedek. He's the, the perfect version of his ancestor David who acted as a priestly king. And we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about why this matters for all of us. But really quickly, I want to just mention um, the end of chapter 5. The, guy goes from, the, the writer goes from theology mode to pastor mode and just is like, hey, it's time to grow up. Like kind of tough talk, you know, like kind of a tough pep talk. Like we keep talking about simple things over and over again. I'm like, buddy, you're talking about Melchizedek. None of this is simple, right? But he's like, the, you guys keep to the simple things. You're not growing in your faith. It's time to grow up. And then the beginning of chapter 6 gives this severe warning. Be careful. Don't fall away. Do not walk away from your faith. Because if you do, it'll be impossible to return. These passages are pretty controversial in the history of the church, and I'm not going to get into all that today. But I do want to just throw that out there that this week in the midweek mashup, which is a a short video we put together, which is some extra content. Um, We put it on our YouTube. But I want to talk about those verses because they're pretty controversial and and kind of an interesting theological conversation. Um, But I do just want to say this. Why does the author of Hebrews give such a stern warning? It's not a judgment about people who have walked away. It's a warning to those who haven't walked away yet. The author is saying, take this seriously. Do not mess around. Invest in your faith. Invest in your growth. It's time to grow up. David De Silva points out that the author doesn't see salvation as a Christmas gift wrapped up with a bow that you open and enjoy. No, the author of Hebrews goes on to talk about what kind of gift salvation is. It's like a seed, this miraculous thing that will become something greater if, if it's nourished, if it's handled correctly, if it's placed in good soil and watered. Yes, salvation is a gift. It's a seed that we are to nourish. And like a plant that produces a crop, we are to grow up. We're to chase after our spiritual maturity. And we do that in community, right? We, we, we help each other grow. But we also align our lives with scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit. We grow through prayer. We grow through making our faith a priority. Like Jesus said, what we invest our time, our treasures, our talents in will show us what our hearts care about. So we strive to grow in any way we can. That's the pastoral heart of this text is understand what a gift we have in Jesus. And then don't waste it. Invest in it. Water that seed and let it grow. All right, let's get back to the priesthood and finish why this matters for you and me. First, Am I, lead pastor of Fremont Community Church, a priest? Yes. And I'm going to start wearing a collar next week. Just kidding. Yes and no, right? Practically speaking, uh, I am a priest in that I do my best to teach what God is like. That's part of my role here, hopefully to represent God to us all uh, in a way that, that helps us to understand and know him. And I also go to God in behalf of of all of you in prayer. So I represent you to God, right? But here's the key thing. You also represent me to God when you pray for me. You are a priest as much as I am a priest. And we'll get into why theologically that works. But in the wise words of the Avet brothers, me and my God don't need a middleman. 
You don't need me to be a middleman between you and God. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. You don't need me to represent you to God and God to yourself. You can go straight to the source. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 7. This is what Jesus as our high priest has done for us. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. That's what Jesus did on the cross, right? For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. What does this mean? It means Jesus as a high priest has permanently broken down the barrier between God and man. In the temple, the Holy of Holies was divided by this crazy thick curtain to make very clear, don't go in there. You cannot handle the presence of God. We know that when Jesus was crucified, that temple curtain was torn and the space that separated God from humans was done away with. I won't steal too much of Ty's thunder, so I'll leave it at that. But it's so important that we know that Jesus has become a perfect priest, a perfect mediator on our behalf. Though we were separated from God through our self-centeredness, through our rebelliousness, through our sin, we can have peace with God that's permanent. It's not like, oh, I messed up again. I, ugh, he hates me again. I got, no, it's, it's permanent. It's finished. You can have peace with God forever. I've heard people say things like, oh man, if I walk through the doors of your church, the whole building will probably collapse around me. There's this idea that, yeah, there's grace, but not for me. I'm too far gone. My sins are too much. I'm too messed up. The author of Hebrews wants us to, to say that, no, that's not true. The grace of God that is given to us in Christ is so big, so strong. The author says it's perfect. There's no sin and there's no sinner that could overcome that kind of perfect grace. If you're the type of person that beats yourself up, if you, if you have trouble experiencing grace, if you have trouble forgiving yourself, this is for you. God loves you so much that he would do anything to forgive you, to restore you, and draw close to you. The challenge for us, if we were those types of people who beat ourselves up and we have an overdeveloped sense of guilt, is can you believe it so much that you truly experience it, feel it even in your body, that God loves and forgives and welcomes you? Stop beating yourself up and go to Jesus. Just confess everything and receive his grace. His grace is perfect and it sets you free. He wants to take that burden off your shoulders so that you can be free. That's what he does as high priest. One more, Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can I just highlight that? Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. This is a beautiful image for us. See, the temple was supposed to be an earthly reflection of God's heavenly throne room, right? 
It was to represent that. And so like even in the earthly version of it, there was fear. Don't go in there. You can't handle the presence of God. And now we're told we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. This is what Jesus does as a high priest. When we talk about the good news that Jesus is Lord, this is what we mean. The Lord, the eternal son of God, became our high priest by taking on flesh. He became human like us. He experienced every joy and sorrow that humanity experiences. He defeats sin because he is without sin, the only human to ever be without sin. And he takes our sin on his shoulders, but he also takes our pain. He kicked down the barriers that keep us from God. And like Adrian talked about last week, we have no barrier between us and God. Now, instead, we get the presence of God here and now. So, what does that mean for us this Christmas? Well, it means three things, and I want to just talk about them very briefly before we close. It means because of Christmas, because Jesus became flesh that first Christmas and became our high priest, we can have peace with God. Jesus is our mediator, and he has made peace with God on our behalf. And we now have his presence, which means we have true life. The author of Hebrews tells us that this life is eternal. Though we die, we will be resurrected again, and we will live in his presence for all eternity. In all eternity, we'll experience his perfect peace. We experience it now by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're still in this messed up world, and it gets in the way, and we get distracted, and we forget but one day, we'll be in his presence and experience his perfect peace for all eternity. Because of Christmas, because Jesus became our high priest, we can heal. You know, he, he didn't go through what he went through for nothing. He went through what he went through so he could heal us. He takes on our sin and our pain, and that means those things don't have victory over us anymore he came to take on our pain and to empathize with us in our weakness so that we can heal. And in Jesus, you can take steps toward healing, all while keeping your eyes fixed on that perfect and eternal healing that's waiting for us on the other side. And this is really important at Christmas time to remember that Jesus came to heal, to be a healer. You know, today we light the joy candle. And maybe you're not feeling joyful. I, I get that. I can think of some Christmases that were not very joyful, right? Maybe this is your first Christmas where somebody who's supposed to be at the table isn't there anymore. Maybe it's been a bunch of Christmases where somebody was missing. Why do I get emotional? Um, <laughs> I get emotional because of this. Jesus didn't come here for nothing. He experienced that. We have examples in the Gospels where he loses someone he loves and he weeps. He didn't come for nothing. He came so that he could experience what you experience when you're grieving, when you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling lost. He experienced all of that. And he's come to redeem it. He's come to heal it. Little by little here and now, but ultimately perfectly in eternity. So if you're not feeling joyful, that's okay. Still draw near to him. He's here to heal. Lastly, because of Christmas, we could start over. 
I think this is so much of what the author of Hebrews wants the, the people in, in his or her congregation to understand as pastor. Because Jesus defeated sin, we don't have to be slaves to it anymore. The presence of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit working in and through us, means that we can have victory. We can walk away from our old ways and habits, and as the author says, we can grow up. Don't stay stuck. Strive for a new way forward. It's possible because we have the presence of God. We can walk faithfully in the presence of God day by day in the power of the Holy Spirit. When I talk to people who knew me before Jesus, and they're like, wait, you're a pastor? That's not possible. And they're right, except for the Holy Spirit's transformation. And I'm not perfect. I'm still an idiot. But, but I'm not the idiot I once was. God has given me so much victory, not by my own strength or discipline or goodness, but by his spirit. We can walk away from those old ways that just lead us to, to sorrow and trouble and death. We can walk with his spirit day by day and have victory. So let's experience these things this Christmas. Let's recognize the peace we have with God and continue to draw near to him with confidence, right? Let's experience his healing. He, he, he weeps as you weep. He is near. And let's start over. If you need a fresh start, start today. Don't wait. Ask God to forgive you. Ask his Holy Spirit to give you the strength to start over in a new path. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. We're gonna continue worshiping and we're gonna also uh, do the candle lighting in between our two songs, but let's do that. Let's strive this week as we look forward to Christmas, let's joyfully pursue Jesus giving thanks for him, our perfect high priest who has made peace with God for us, has brought us healing and, and a brand new start. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even when it talks about dudes like Melchizedek, it's so, honestly, it's confusing. Thank you for, for helping us make sense of it. Thank you for your grace as we try to figure out what it means to be faithful. Lord, I, I just, I thank you so much for Jesus, our high priest. Growing up, not religious, Lord, I didn't know I needed a priest. And I did, and, and he's the perfect high priest. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have because the one without sin took, took that burden to the cross for us. Thank you that we have peace with you now and for eternity. That we can approach you confidently this morning. Thank you that you bring healing. We need it, Lord. This place, this, this world is so torn up and none of us, none of us gets out unscathed. And God, just bring your healing. Especially for those who are feeling desperate or in grief right now. God, please be near. And God, give us Give us a fresh start. Give us the power of your spirit, not just to walk away from sin, but to walk into this world, going to food banks and inviting people to come with us or, or giving generously to people who, who, who need to be blessed this Christmas. God, give us the power of your spirit to be new, to be your ambassadors, your priests. Let us shine like a light so that people might know who you are and how much you love them. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.